You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and uh, welcome to another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, currently travelling through Europe. And joining me at the moment, uh, as usual, is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well. Well, I'm well, Giles. Someone has to do the hard work of manning the studio when when, when, when others are uh, on tour. And in this case, it's me. (laughs) <laughs> no, well, thank you very much for doing so, David. Um, look, we've got a great interview uh, with Davina Rooney uh, later on, but look, maybe we should just sort of start off with some of the big events of the last week. And it's it's one of the, it's, it's another one of those weeks where we just see transition in play in all its different forms. One, the um, the changing in the AGL board, which was once again sort of started off being a bit half-assed by the board itself. Um, trying to change the board in its own image, and then the uh, um, the activist shareholders such as Mike Cannon Brooks, but not only Mike Cannon Brooks, I should point out, some of the other big um, institutional shareholders forced more change upon them. They might have even fo- wanted to um, force even more change. We saw Origin making a decision, probably for corporate reputation purposes, to get out of the Beetaloo Basin and sh- sell its interest there. And then we just saw Santos, which seems to have no interest at all in changing its spots, basically being brought to heel by the courts uh, in an action by, um, brought by the Indigenous land, landowners. It seems to me, David, that in all these three things, um, it's all quite significant for their own reasons. Uh, y- yes, they are. Look, all the big uh, companies are struggling, uh, as we mentioned before, the, the Gentilers to make a transition. Uh, AGL strategy has got to be seen. They haven't got a chief executive at the moment. The strategy will get announced. I don't know that we can say a lot more about that. The the new chair uh, is an experienced chair, I can say that, and she's experienced at AGL for a while as well. So we just have to wait and see there. We can welcome the appointment of Miles George. Um, uh, Origin, uh, you know, has has done the hard one half of the journey. In a sense, it's the easy half, which is basically getting rid of the stuff it doesn't want to be in. But like many of us out there, it's one thing to know what you don't want to do. It's quite another thing to work out what you do want to do. And so with all these big uh, wind and solar portfolios for, for sale in Australia, it may be that Origin will, will, will finally go where it should have gone a few years ago, and that is to get big in wind and solar, which is going to be the bulk energy. Um, and uh, along that lines, you know, we, we, we continue to see offshore wind and, and hydrogen announcements uh, every week. But I was the only thing that I really cared about this week in, in terms of those sorts of announcements was uh, Grand Solar uh, signing up for a couple of uh, solar projects, uh, which, which you know is actually going to make a difference in the next couple of years. Yes, yes, we did see um, with the Grand Solar uh, contracts with LightSource uh, BP uh, actual contracts as opposed to yet more ideas. But it was interesting to see um, Andrew Forrest fleshing out the details of his own sort of zero carbon plan for Fortescue Metals, planning uh, to spend $9.2 billion, most of it in wind solar batteries and hydrogen electrolyzers. Most of that will be focused in the Pilbara. We also saw um, Sun Metals um, owner um, Korea Zinc. 
uh, talking about an even bigger project, three megawatts of wind and so three gigawatts, my, my apologies, three gigawatts of wind and solar in Queensland as part of its decarbonisation process. And um, it's actually already engaged in, in some serious contracts. It's got a share of the McIntyre Wind Project and, um, and another offtake agreement. So it's all kind of pushing in the right direction. Um, one of the fascinating things, I'm just going to sort of brief before we get to the uh, interview with Davina Rooney, was just the experience I've had in, in Europe. And I actually came to a, a trucking conference of all things. Um, never in my life did I ever think I'd go to a trucking, a trucking conference, um, let alone the dr biggest trucking conference in the world. But it was just fascinating to see, David, that um, the, it was all about electrification. There was ba barely a diesel truck. Um, in the whole area, and this is the biggest exhibition area in the whole world. It takes about 40 minutes to walk from one side of the thing to the other. Um, some big OEMs, you know, the big legacy truck makers, brought no diesel trucks at all. It was all electric. The theme was just extraordinary electric. And the thing that struck me, David, mostly was, you know, whatever you think about the individual electric trucks and things like that, was that this transition, and they are aiming pretty hard, pretty fast, is actually being led by the legacy um, industry, the big OEMs, which is in contrast to what we've seen mostly in the um, electricity space and in contrast to what we've seen in the EV space. And I rather fancy that when it comes to electric vehicles, they've kind of looked to see what's happened in, in um, passenger cars and things like that and seen the, the march that Tesla has stolen over the rest of the uh, legacy car makers. And they say that even though they've got a few upstarts in their own area, such as Tesla Semi, which you still haven't really seen, and Nikola and other people, they want to take control. So it's really interesting to see the legacy industry taking the lead on this. Yes, Giles. And I, I really want to get to uh, the interview with Davina, which is a great interview in my opinion. But just quickly, what about uh, in trucks? There's been still talk about hydrogen. I saw BMW, which of course is nowhere in electric cars, talking about hydrogen. Um, how's the trucking industry? Was it all electric or was the hydrogen electric? Look, there's, there's still a realisation that for the longer distances, um, they're probably going to need hydrogen. But there's kind of like they're thinking like they wish they could get actually a bigger and a smarter battery. Um, to appear by then. Um, most of the biggest um, truck makers think that hydrogen, if it's going to come at all, will be still at least five years away. A lot can happen in battery storage um, until then. As the, um, as the Daimler Mercedes people pointed out, you say you basically need three or four turbines to fill a battery um, with um, hydrogen and only one turbine to fill it with, um, with, uh, with, with battery electric. So they understand that the efficiency lies with battery electric. It's just that how many batteries and how big a batteries do you need to go to long distances. But a lot of the heavy duty electric trucks, and we were the first to actually drive the production series electric trucks from Volvo, uh, first people in the world actually, it was quite remarkable. Um, uh, most of those ones are going to be centred into the majority of the trucking business, which is essentially distribution, going from ports to logistics centres, all the things in and around cities. Um, and yes, yes, sure, the really long distance trucking still open to conjecture as to how that's going to be sold. They also talk about biofuels and synthetic fuels, but battery electric for the most of it. But anyway, why don't you introduce Davina Rooney, because it sounds like a great interview. Indeed, Giles. It was a, a pleasure to interview Davina Rooney on the day before she, like some other people, headed off to Europe. Uh, <laughs> the chief executive of the uh, Green Building Council, and uh, Davina has a background, I think, originally as an engineer, uh, and I, I found this a great interview, so uh, let's see what she had to say. Uh, it's welcome to Davina uh, Rooney, the CEO of the Green Building Council. Thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast, Davina. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, not all of our listeners who are mostly electricity people will necessarily understand what the Green Building Council is. Perhaps you could just uh, tell us a little tiny bit about uh, how it got started and, uh, you know, how big it is and what, more or less what it's, what it's been able to achieve so far. Yeah, fantastic. So the Green Building Council of Australia is a not-for-profit that partners with industry to drive transformation in the built environment. So it came out of the Green Games, the Sydney Olympics, and there's four key things that we do at the moment. So we we rate, so we rate buildings uh, in our system called Green Star, which means we lift the bar for um, better performance. So what world leadership looks like in built environment, we rate that all the way down through Australian excellence um, and best practice. Now, the other fabulous thing we do is we educate. So we run seminars for people within property and construction of how to do better buildings, you know, run conferences, everything from thought leadership series Critically, we advocate, so we partner with government to take the high voluntary standards that we set with our partners and translate those into regulation. But the most important thing we do is collaborate. So we work with over 600 members across the built environment, everyone from developers, owners, constructors, property, manufacturers, the whole scale, government members, to say, how do we take these big ideas and how do we translate them um, into action? So for us, we certify everything from carbon neutral buildings um, all the way across office fit outs, um, the whole scale of precincts, you know, the, some of the new cities that are coming up. So we're, we're very involved in, in how we take property forward. And increasingly, we're seeing the huge link between you know, energy built form with buildings using 50% of the energy in Australia. So if we're looking at solutions in that market, we really need to look at buildings. Uh, indeed. And so there's a lot of different things to think about in this, uh, but I might just, uh, uh, and there's the embodied energy in mm. products as well uh, yep. and the construction of products. And, you know, like cement, for instance, is the fourth largest uh, contributor uh, to global warming uh, outside of agriculture, forestry. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, there's a lot of different things when, when we think about that. But if we just start at the, I guess, the headline level, if you look at it one way, residential building, I think, is about 11% or 12% of carbon emissions. And I think commercial buildings about another 10% uh, of Australia's emissions. So I guess in total, a bit over a 100 million tonnes or something. Am I thinking about that the right way? Yeah, and, and that's looking at operational energy to your very valid point earlier. When you include the material side of that, it gets bigger. So like on a global scale, property, when you add it up and include operation plus the energy from the materials, it's about 40% of global carbon emissions. So a very big part of the problem and the opportunity to be a very big part of the solution. And if we talk, and it's also, um, again, you can measure this in lots of different ways, but the electricity consumption by the residential sector, I think, is something like 30% of all consumption and commercial building, uh, commercial users of property, I guess about another 25% or something, so more than half the, the, the electricity as well. Absolutely. So when we look at you know, the country going net zero, we can't do that without buildings. And there's a huge opportunity at the moment to, you know, how do buildings play their role in stabilising the grid? 
So, you know, not looking at net zero buildings, but the future is going to be looking at zero buildings that actually use energy aligned with time of use um, so that we're actually driving things the right way and ideally reduce the large additional amounts of storage or transmission lines that we think by dealing with these problems at source. And so if we just look at the energy consumption of the building before we get to the embodied uh, energy, I'm actually interested in the embodied energy because I have a background at looking at building materials, but putting that to one side for the moment, if we look at the energy use, how exactly can we improve that? And how is the Green Building Council uh, actually working to, to improve, or I guess improve energy efficiency is one thing, and then, of course, you've got self-generation via behind-the-meter solar panels mostly or combined heat and power as, as, as another thing. Yeah. So we've really got to look at highly efficient buildings powered by renewables that are fossil fuel free. You know, So a, a huge focus in this space of what we do on the efficiency side, how we link it with generation, and as the grid decarbonises, how we substantively electrify in that space. Now, the thing that's really interesting is you've really got to take the residential market and the commercial market and, and break them in half. So when we look at leading commercial property owners um, in Australia, they are globally leading in their thinking. So, you know, they've won the, the global real estate sustainability benchmark every year since it's been in inception. Um, they've been number one on the Dow Jones Sustainability Property Index. And they're doing enormously well. Now, factors driving that, um, partnerships with groups like ourselves, the Property Council, industry, and there's a really good disclosure scheme called Neighbours, the National Australian Built Environment Rating Scheme, which is actually like doing some of the best decarbonisation in the world. We have mandatory disclosure in office. So if you're going to um, buy or rent a building for more than 1,000 square metres, you have to know its rating. And what we're seeing is what gets measured gets managed. And so some of these uh, rating systems are being sent to other parts of the globe. Now contrast that to Resi. At the moment, we do not have a national disclosure scheme. And unlike other countries that are doing it enormously well, um, we don't have requirements for disclosure in that space. And also, um, up until recently, we haven't actually had a change in the construction code for over a decade. So, you know, we're doing really well right at the top of um, the commercial property side and globally we're down near the bottom on the resi side. So, you know, the role of groups like ourselves and others is how do we link these things up, get them together and get them moving. So just to give an example in residential, um, we launched a partnership program called Green Star Homes last year where we partner with volume home builders to try and get them to improve the standards of their base design. We launched that earlier this year with ComBank with a mortgage. We're going to be doing a TV show around this because if you're talking about residential, you need to set things up so that mums and dads really care about them. So you need to be going for issues that everyone can understand. I want a healthier home for my family that's cheaper to run, that um, will be there tomorrow. So focusing on 
net zero attributes, focusing on resilience um, in the light of future weather conditions and focusing on the health aspects and trying to bring those together as a comprehensive standard. So, you know, we've got to look at an ecosystem play because if you're going to do things in property, uh, we spend 90% of our time indoors. That's where many, that's where we live our lives. Uh, yes. Uh, um, so let's just talk about the residential side of things. Mm-hmm. So I guess home builders, uh, home buyers, I best look at their home price and generally, um, well, even the residential sector really breaks down into two, the, 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 the multi-unit sector, the apartment mm-hmm. sector, whatever you want to call it, and, and detached houses. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's just focus on the apartment sector just for a second because that seems to have more opportunities, if you like, because you've got big developers that have more control over what they sell uh, uh, in some ways, uh, and I guess more easy, you know, the average square metres per apartment is smaller, so your energy efficiency, energy consumption per residence automatically uh, tend to be lower. But I guess overall what I have seen, what I think I'm seeing, is that uh, apartment buildings just build the lowest quality you can possibly sell and things like double glazed windows and stuff like that. Uh, just just don't seem to get into the picture. But am I, uh, am, am I looking at it the right way? Residential's been, this is where Australia, you know, has not been leading. You know, we haven't had high standards. So there's a couple of things that excite me in this space and I think they make the future possible. One is um, an institutional asset class called Build to Rent where, you know, institutional owners hold buildings for long term is starting to move in Australia. And like many institutional asset classes, we're seeing very high amounts of sustainability. Um, We partnered with Sentinel to certify the first carbon neutral in operation, Um, you know, Build to Rent apartment building. And what we're seeing is, this new trend of really high quality real estate coming out from that area. I want to absolutely acknowledge your point that for too long, we've seen low quality um, apartments that are using lowest common denominator products. And that's why it was um, such a win when the National Construction Code for 2022 is going to change the energy efficiency requirements from six star to seven-star NatHERS ratings, but so it's moving up a star level. Um, there is always more to be done, but this is the first positive movement in a decade because if we're talking about driving change, we need to lift the aspiration of the voluntary market, but at the same time, we actually need regulation in place. But the big thing we need is clear national energy disclosure. I go and buy a fridge. I know what the energy rating is, but the biggest asset that I'll ever lay out money for in my whole life, like a home that I'll live in, be it an apartment or a detached dwelling, and I have no idea how efficient it is when I buy it. So so I, I, that's, that, I agree with that, or, or sort of you do have an idea, but you don't often tend to think about it. But when there's a big red sticker on the front of the house with a few stars on it, then, then maybe you, you, you just least registers on your brain as, as opposed to where, which street it's in and what floor it's on. 
But if we just uh, stay with apartments for one moment, what does, uh, uh, I mean, you can't put the solar typically on the roof. What, what does a zero, what does a modern best practice apartment building look like? Uh, and again, before we get to the embodied energy, but mm. uh, well, actually let's include the embodied energy, but uh, you know, because we see wooden buildings or buildings made out of fibre cement, uh, uh, talk to me about what I'm, uh, you know someone who cares about this stuff actually builds for their for their customers. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. When we talk about you know net zero climate positive in the broader sense, we're talking about highly efficient buildings powered by renewables, fossil fuel free, built with low embodied carbon, and you know offset by nature. There's always that that last little bit. So what does it look like in this space? Well, you want a really good thermal envelope you know one of the phrases we use is to say it's been legal in Australia to build glorified tents so you want you want that better thermal performance you know envelope first you want highly efficient fittings fixtures appliances you want solar if you can get it on the roof but you know logically you want to be buying a power purchase agreement for renewables off-site um, the other exciting things that you note that we're starting to see is is better materials coming into this space you know so um we absolutely want to see whether it's low carbon concretes some fabulous buildings the forte in melbourne you know timber structures there, there's a whole range of what we're doing in this space but it needs to be set up so that a consumer can value it and that so that they know what it is so that's why, you know, New South Wales only a little over a week ago has actually um, put in uh, a new sustainable building state environmental planning policy where you're going to have to work out how much embodied carbon you use when you build a building. So what we're starting to see is step changes in this space that are coming through at state-based planning regulations in addition to the changes we're seeing nationally. And so let's just talk about this new national construction code, which steps it up a star level. I, mm -hmm. I did a little bit of reading about this, and and I guess there are benefits to consumers in terms of lower electricity uh, costs. Mm -hmm. There are kind of benefits to society out of reduced carbon consumption, but they're difficult to value uh, because of the lack of a, a, a explicit price on carbon. Uh, and 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 the kind of report that was done sort of said that in the end it wasn't a positive economic outcome, but we're still uh, going ahead with it, which I of course I fully support. I just wondered if you could talk about how governments came to that conclusion in in the light of the report. The final um, so when we go through these stages, there's a consultation regulatory impact statement, um, and then there's a final decision regulatory impact statement. The final decision regulatory impact statement found that there was a positive benefit in going forward. And importantly, that consumers were further ahead. You know, so the way that it's been characterized to me is that it was a, a cost to benefit ratio of 1.3, which means you get a 30% return on investment. Now that's a lot better than I can get in my bank account at the moment. Um, but I think you're right to your absolute point. There's still huge factors that we can't actually quantify yet. You know, the environmental factors of if we have more polluting buildings, what does that do to people's health and well-being? 
Um, what are we paying as a society for that in the hospitals? There's a number of these range of benefits and if fully quantified, they're quite substantive. But at the moment, we stick with the very direct costs to a large extent because we don't have research on all areas. But even by those, the final decision regulatory impact statement had a positive cost benefit ratio. And, and I guess just uh, thinking of it broadly, this new standard will come into place uh, at, in various states at various times, I guess. But broadly speaking, for, for houses that get built, what, sometime from 2023 onwards or something like that? Yeah, so um, New South Wales, ACT, um, Queensland, Victoria are going with a one-year transition. Tasmania is adopting a three-year transition and we still have um, yet to see an announcement from South Australia and Victoria. Now, we would strongly encourage a national construction code to have a national implementation plan because obviously the most, co the most costly thing to do is to do this like Topsy, implement different things in different states so that our builders don't actually get the economies of scale. But for most Australians... This will be in place for new buildings from October 2023. And uh, it will cost homeowners more, uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, um, but I guess the, the evidence broadly suggests that they'll save annually on their energy bills and presumably, uh, is there any evidence or data to suggest that they'll actually be able to sell the price for a, for a higher value than a house that didn't uh, meet these new standards? Yeah, so Domain's done some really interesting research showing that people um, are paying up to $125,000 more for energy-efficient homes when they looked when they did a review across the sales across their listings. So we're actually starting to see really tangible evidence that people will be doing better. The, the code review suggested it would cost, um, on average, $2,200 more per dwelling. And you're right, people would obtain that back through savings. So when you think about it, you pay a little bit more upfront, but as most buildings that are purchased in residential are through a mortgage, and because you're actually saving money on each of your bills, it means that you're cash flow positive from the start. And we, the basic point is that it goes for the building house goes from a six star to a seven star, but that's not a green star, is it? I, 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 no. Excuse me, I get I get confused with participation certificates and merit awards and yeah. all these different stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that star rating is a NATHERS, the National Australian uh, Housing Energy Rating Scheme, and you would be forgiven in anywhere in the sustainability or energy space by getting lost in your acronyms between your ESCIs and, you know, the, the whole spectrum of things. So that's why in the disclosure space, we really want clarity and to use the same scheme because it's confusing and consumer research showed that Australians are confused. Yeah, yeah. I'm certainly an Australian on that basis uh, every day <laughs> and all day. Uh, Davina, what does it actually, it really, that the move from the six to seven star Nova's uh, uh, rating really applies to appliances more than the actual uh, uh, insulation value or thermal quality of the house. Uh, what's the best, does, does it, that's my, I guess that's my first question. No. 
Nat Herz is all about the building fabric. They're also moving to a whole of house energy budget, but it is predominantly the move from six to seven stars is actually about the building's fabric. The reason why this is confusing is because different states and territories have different schemes, including New South Wales, which has basics, which also allows you to consider the energy efficiency of appliances. Right. And um, and so what's the, is there a single metric other than a star of how to think of the building fabric and its, uh, I guess, energy, energy efficiency, is it? I mean, is that, you know... Uh, what, what it comes down to is it's looking at energy efficiency in different locations around the country. The reason why they actually use a star rating is because you're trading off the building envelope, you're trading double glazed winding windows, the level of insulation, and, and you're doing it in different climate zones. So it's actually quite complex. It wouldn't be reasonable to compare, you know, a really cold location um, you know, the depths of Tasmania with raw metrics from Cairns. And so they use the star rating system to actually, um, to simplify it, to give us a national reference frame. So, you know, I was I was speaking um, on Talkback Radio in Western Australia. And one of the things I was saying is, you know, the average Australian can't have a PhD in this space. What we need is a simplified national system that gives us an indication of where to go in this space, and that and that's what the NatHERS rating system is doing in this space. And so, uh, does it mean that you're going to be? I mean, how does net zero? I don't even like the term personally. Net zero. It's either zero or someone else is emitting carbon or you know saving yeah. something, but. But, but where does seven stars fit in in terms uh, – I'm still not quite sure how to operationalise the term. As you say, it might mean double glazing. It yeah. might mean insulation. Uh, it might mean ventilation. I don't know. What does it actually – So it, it tells you – like so the way it works is it's an efficiency score for your fabric out of 10. And it tells you you're seven out of 10 on your way on there. So what it tells you is you've got a pretty good baseline efficiency – um, and so for the Green Building Council in our Green Star homes, we recommend, depending on the climate zone, someone has, you know, a seven or a seven and a half star NatHERS, they do a bit of extra air tightness work on their home and that we check that that actually occurs. And then we put renewables on the roof, you know, and we have a fully electrified home. And that's what, for us, net zero in operation looks like. That's right. So you could get that. You could get there with about a seven and a half or eight score plus plus some rooftop solar. Is uh, and, and depending I guess, where you are in Australia, sometimes seven, and depending on the size of your house, you know. Yeah, but seven is a pretty good base to start working on these things from. If you're looking at other things as well. That's right. You know, my own house here. I've got all the solar bits and pieces, but it, well, it's been built uh, over about forty years and. Uh, it's never going to be airtight. I can uh, absolutely guarantee that. Um... <laughs> Look, I think many of us discovered uh, in the lockdowns over the last couple of years just how bloody uncomfortable our houses were. So I foolishly did a retrofit of my own house and ripped out my kitchen last year on the first day of the hard construction lockdown. So I have a lot of empathy with anyone who uh, is seeking to uh, do more in air tightness and thermal efficiency of their existing home. We went through and put in double glazed windows in our existing home and it's quite a journey, but we're certainly a lot more comfortable than we were, particularly a lot more comfortable than we were when we ripped the back off the house before a construction lockdown. 
And are you pleased with the outcome? Has it achieved what you thought it would before you started on that journey? Yeah, I think always with existing buildings, existing homes, there's always one more thing to do. You know, so I, I was I was under my house the other day, um, looking at the the last spots where we've got to you know crawl underneath and get the last bits of insulation in, or or we put a new floor that did a pretty good air seal over the existing areas. Um, I've got one cupboard where I where where we didn't get new flooring in, and I'll be sealing that differently. So I think always it's a journey, but I must say we're a lot more comfortable than we were at the start of this process. Um, and, and so it's a step in the right direction. Yes, and that, that's what I think about it myself, although it's a constant discussion in this house and we shouldn't be wasting everyone listeners talk about it because I, I can see the benefits despite the cost, hmm. uh, but it's not always a universally accepted view. Um, uh, and in terms of materials, I mean, what what are we seeing in the way of new housing materials? So I I um, uh, look at things like uh, I guess fibre cement as compared to bricks uh, and uh, you know hebel block, and then we can talk about roofing tiles. I mean, is there some sort of uh, and then there's different insulation. I mean, what are, do, do you yeah. have a view on the sort of trends that we've got for those people who are who are trying to get, go work forward in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So, so just to say, like, why, why do we care about um, embodied carbon? It's about 16% of emissions in built form at the moment. But we know as the grid moves to renewables, if we do nothing in this space, it'll become 85% of the emissions in buildings. So let's be really clear, this is going to be the focus over the next decade. And it's, you know, we're already seeing that at, at the big end of town. So the Atlassian building that we're partnering on has a target of um, reducing its upfront carbon emissions by 50%. So they're moving to a huge range of, you know, timber structures. They're looking at low, um, low carbon concrete. So what I'd say is we're seeing huge movement in this space um, as we come down to the resi side, um, you know, people being able to buy different low carbon concretes is a big part of it. People swapping to timber structures. We're, we're seeing a whole gamut. I mean, the thing that I love about this space is that it's moving so fast. One of one of our partners um, in, in the home space gave us a call and said, we're going to start 3D printing buildings with low embodied carbon concrete. And we'd like to certify those net zero upfront, you know, so certified carbon neutral we are seeing a ridiculous amount of change. So the thing that's exciting about the work, you know, setting Australia setting a 43%, you know, reduction target for 2030 are starting to aggressively move to that more and more consumer interest is things that we were saying were impossible a few years ago are actually happening right now. So there's a huge amount of change in this space. Uh, but materials is one, we call them the hard to abate sectors. We're going to be working on these all the way out to 2040, 2050. Yeah. And, you know, I'm surprised that there is a low carbon concrete because uh, it's a pretty difficult thing to to achieve, isn't it? Really? I mean, you know, like cement just mm. gives off. I, I mean, and there's a lot of concrete consumed in Australia, of course. And so, you know, it would be handy if we had a low carbon way of doing it, but you can get that product now. There's, we're seeing more and more. So we're seeing a lot of lime substitution, you know, whether that's through other cementitious materials, like, you know, like 
slag that comes from coal power stations. We're seeing polymer concretes. Where there's a whole range of things coming onto this market at scale. So one of the things that's been missing in materials, and you know, I'm a boring engineer. You know, uh, more than uh, 20 years ago, I did my first embodied carbon report in materials and and it was such a boring report that nobody cared I'm not sure my client cared you know what I mean I I don't think it has had the focus of interest what has been really interesting is um in 2019 we launched a report with the World Green Building Council and got a number of global property partners manufacturers to say this is a huge deal if we're going to hit the global goals we need to be 40 percent down by 2030 and we need to be down to net zero um by 2050. Within six weeks of that, InfraBuild announced a a, a giant steel company that they were going to go net zero by 2030. Now, they do a lot of recycled steel, um, but by early the next year, um, we were doing a big catch-up together with Wholesome. Um, They announced that they were bringing in their first carbon-neutral concrete range, which a combination of, um, you know, reductions that they put through their their different ranges but also absolutely to your point some offsets so but the really useful thing about that is you know with the state of the climate and biodiversity crisis we're really going to be need to invest in nature-based systems so that done well is a clear part of the solution towards regeneration and it also makes it incredibly expensive in the product space which further incentivizes some of the new technology and R&D in the space that we need to see at scale. Yeah, that's right. And again, listeners will probably get uh, bored if we talk too much about materials, but it's, uh, I guess it's used my ex-professional interest. And uh, you have to think about the transport and all these heavy materials uh, mm-hmm. use a lot more energy in the actual transport of them. If you And just before we move off that little bit, what about double glazing? I mean, New Zealand Mm -hmm. has compulsory double glazing. And I guess the reason why residential building is so poor on energy efficiency in Australia is because uh, it is hotter, you know, like in Europe and uh, in the United States uh, where it gets cold in winter. Uh, there's always been a natural bigger focus on reducing the the, the heating cost ultimately. Mm. Mm. And so... I think one of the greatest misnomers is that it doesn't get cold in Australia. I speak to people from Europe and they live, you know, they move out to Australia and they say they've never been so cold in their entire life. Uh, One of the key statistics is more Australians die from mild cold than they do in Sweden. Um, But at the other end of the spectrum, the vulnerabilities are absolutely there. We need to, a lot of more Australians die from heat stress than anything else. So having white coloured roofs, absolutely a focus on big overhangs, looking at natural pathways for this, they're absolutely critical. So it's unusual in that we need to actually design our houses for both ends of the spectrum, depending on where you are in the country. But a fabric first, designing our buildings for tomorrow has got to be fundamental in all these approaches. Well, I guess that's right. And you can always go back to the old rules if you if you have the option of having your face house facing uh, north and having a hill behind it, you know, and as you say, big overhangs and things. But I guess increasingly, uh, you know, with small land blocks that are just wherever they happen to be, you, you don't get a lot of choices in all of these things. Uh, 
Um, uh, but choosing uh, to put a black roof on a small, you know, land block, there, there's certainly choices that we're making. And, you know, to date, we haven't always been making the best ones. No, I think that's right. And, and, and indeed, you, you, I, I'm getting into people say that, well, even detached housing is, is naturally more energy inefficient uh, than, you know, far out in the suburbs than, than living in the inner city in an apartment block. But that's the Australian way of life. Uh, um, it's been a great discussion. Um, I just wonder, is there any, what else should I be asking about that, that, that we ha haven't covered off on? I, mean, I suppose the thing is it's going to take a long time, right? We build 200,000 houses a year. Hmm. There's something like 10 million houses in Australia. I, you know, I forget the exact number. Maybe it's a bit more or less, 9 million. It's going to take a long time to get them all up to scratch, isn't it, really? It, look, it absolutely is, but that's why it's really critical that we start now. Um, I guess another thing that I'd really love to bring to the forefront is now's the time to focus on electrification. So the other thing that we see in residential, but I think it's really good to talk about these trends in other asset classes as well, but re recent research reports from the Climate Council tells us that it's as bad for kids as passive smoking to have gas cooking in our houses. That's right. I meant to ask about gas. Go on. So we really need to focus on the electrification agenda. It's better It's better for our families. As we actually decarbonise the grid, gas is going to be a huge part of our emissions. So for those who are incredibly engaged on electrification, the Green Building Council has put out a report on electrifying new buildings. Um, and we are actually putting out a report in the last week of September about electrifying existing buildings. And I must just say this space has moved so fast. You know, so we've got the ACT is actually put out um, a campaign about electrifying. They've actually banned gas from all new suburbs. At the same time, we have, you know, the New South Wales through the Sustainable Building SEP is saying that all commercial buildings must be either electric uh, at the time they're built or by 2035. Um, and that's going to come into planning law from next year. So I'd say we're seeing a huge transition in this space and it's coming a lot faster than we thought. You know, City of Sydney mandating net zero in their new planning regulations things could not be moving any faster in this space. Yeah, that's right. And just talking about gas a bit more, I guess, uh, you know, the ACT is a small gas consumer. Mm. Uh, um, Victoria uh, and I guess South Australia are, are, are the big gas consumers, uh, whether it's at, at residential level. Uh, what's the story? How's Victoria thinking about that? So Victoria's been really leading the discussion, I would say, you know, until the very recent announcements in New South Wales and ACT, Victoria's been looking at a long-term plan in this space. So they've been looking at uh, a gas, gas substitution roadmap that they published earlier this year. Now, as you know, been heavy users of gas um, over the years. And so their, their first step was actually to remove regulation that required gas to go into buildings because until that point, it was actually mandated in certain jurisdictions. And so what, what I would note is they're, they're now working through a pathway of what their next steps are in this space, but it's, it's a really key focus for them as they look at, at their climate goals.
So I'd say it's a work in progress, but since they put out that seminal piece of work, we've seen ACT and New South Wales move really quickly. And then the opportunity is what does this look like nationally? Because again, these are decisions that we need to make as a as a nation and look at how that falls into the new national construction code. If we're going to go after these more aggressive carbon targets, what do we do in the next round of the national construction code, which is for 2025, which is focused on commercial buildings, which is an incredibly live discussion right now. I see. So I think it doesn't just stop at 2022. And can I ask, I think we said at the outset that the building industry uh, and commercial building, uh, you know, everyone's happy, the, ha the, the property developers and the builders, the residential volume builders who are always sort of, uh, you know, either always got issues of one sort or another. <laughs> how, how do they feel about, uh, say, removing gas uh, and stuff mm -hmm. like that? I mean, uh, you know, are they, on, are they on board with the whole thing? Uh, the HAA I saw was sort of uh, a little bit grumpy about it, I thought I read, or something like that. Look, I think change is always hard, right? So, you know, the, the Housing Industry Association has been talking about it's a really tough time in the market. We've, we've had COVID, you know, we've had really bad weather. You know, so one of the things they've been saying is, and the market's incredibly fragmented. We talk about, you know, the volume home builders, but all the big volume home builders together control 40% of the market. There's a lot of, you know, small to medium market players all the way down to, you know, a guy, a dog and his ute. You know, there's a, there's a phenomenal scale change as you move across the market. So is change hard? Yes. Do we need to do it? Yes. When was the best time to do built form that fought climate change? 30 years ago, kind of yeah, like yeah. when Germany started moving in this space. When's the next best time right now? <laughs> and so, you know, I think there's a gap in the market at the moment about um, electrification and starting to understand what that looks like. So we'll be launching with partners uh, a consumer campaign later this year talking about the benefits of electrified cooking in your home. What we need is, you know, induction master chef to bring the hearts and minds piece, which is always critical when we talk in residential. Absolutely. And I might add that in, I was looking in Germany, there's about an 80 or 90% uh, take up of uh, uh, residential batteries whenever someone mm. puts solar in their thing. And then we're going to, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a whole business opportunity around the software and the electric car charger that goes in and, and you know, coordinating it all the bits and pieces. But that's uh, that's for a, a, another another episode of Energy Insiders <laughs> down the track. Well, look, uh, one of the things that I like to say is, you know, with net zero in buildings, we've gotten really good at playing one instrument in the band, but we're actually going to need to put the band, the whole orchestra together to get net zero across society, you know, electric vehicles or batteries on wheels, how they work with buildings and work interoperably with the grid. Some of the business opportunities we see in Europe, that's one of the things that we're absolutely going to need to pull together to, to take this across the whole built environment and building's going to be at the heart of that. Uh, Davini Rooney, uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, this discussion. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And that was uh, Davina Rooney, uh, Chief Executive of the Green uh, Building Council. Giles, I suspect that interview was of general interest to people. For me, as an ex-building materials analyst, and the idea that cement 
is the fourth largest, uh, excluding land use, uh, the fourth largest contributor to global warming. And a lot of that cement comes from uh, China, I have to say. Um, uh, you know, and, and the idea of embedded energy and making houses more sustainable and the fact that people will pay for sustainable housing, um, you know, is, and the fact that commercial buildings already made so much progress, it's the low standards of residential housing that, need, that we need to work on. And, you know, with houses costing so much, um, it's, it's worth paying that bit extra, I reckon, to make a house that people actually are going to be comfortable in and want to live in for the longer term. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yes, I mean, the Green Building Council and people like Davina Rooney and others have been working at this for, you know, years and years and years, you know, um, more than a decade. And I think now is their time in the sun, so to speak. Um, I think there's the realisation that we're moving from big, from building, you know, big um, projects um, outside wind, solar, battery storage, and just actually focusing on the demand side and the efficiencies within the building sector and, 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 and other processes. So you're absolutely right, and I just think it's still a matter of communication and understanding out there in the community that, yes, you may have to pay a little extra, but you will save a lot more, um, both individually but also as a society. So um, um, I think it's just great to have Davina on and just sort of bring these, um, these issues to light. And yes, and we, we, we had these talk about the, the big gas issues, uh, and gas is a topic that still gets... Uh, it's a tough convers it's a tougher conversation than coal from from all perspectives um, uh, but you know moving gas out of residential housing I think is a movement that's gradually gathering pace along with the electrification of everything um, but look uh, Giles a lot of our listeners and readers will, will have experience of that themselves uh, I think we've talked a long time already this evening uh, you probably want to get back to whatever exciting thing is happening in Europe and I want to get on and watch Australia versus New Zealand in the soccer. I think I've got the best deal out of that one, David. So there you go. Uh, but look, good luck. No, look, thank you very much for doing the interview. Um, thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, thanks for Davina Rooney for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, thanks also particularly to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, for your ongoing and continued support. And we'll be back again next week with a, another episode of Energy Insiders. And that's bye uh, for Charles, now. I might say next week, uh, I think uh, I'm fairly confident we'll be able to take a good look at the global scene from someone who's been studying it closely and knows as much about it as anyone. Uh, so uh, listeners can look forward to that too. Indeed. And we've also got a Queensland interview also lined up very soon. That Ooh, depends I on heard the there's some exciting news maybe coming up in Queensland, Giles. Well, Did you hear they... anything about that? Well, yes, we've written a bit about that, actually. I just think that they've suddenly realised of all the different projects that's going on around the place that they actually can go fast and they can go hard. And I think it's actually going to be quite... Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it's going to be quite a uh, dramatic transition um, plan that's announced, but you never quite know. Um, Buy the rumour, sell the fact. That's the usual message. <laughs> anyway, look, once again, thanks to everybody out there. Thanks to our sponsors, Pinal and uh, Evergen. Thanks to you, David. Thanks to Davina and Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future.
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.